we ask you to bless this time as we come together, ask your spirit to guide and lead us as we look at this last chapter in the life of Solomon and ask you to show us what we should learn from all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Second Chronicles chapter 9 starts out with, And when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon, she came to prove Solomon with hard questions at Jerusalem with a very great company and camels that bore spices and gold in abundance and precious stones. And when she was come to Solomon, she communed with him of all that was in her heart. And Solomon told her all, all her questions, and there was nothing hid from Solomon which he told her not. And when the queen of Sheba had seen the wisdom of Solomon and the house that he had built and the meat on his table and the sitting of his servants and the attendance of his ministers and their apparel his cupbearers also in their apparel and his ascent by which he went up into the house of the Lord and there was no more spirit in her and she said to the king it is a true report which I heard in my own land of your acts and of your wisdom Howbeit I believed not their words until I came and my eyes have seen and behold the one half of the greatness of your wisdom was not told me for you exceed the fame which I heard Happy are your men, and happy are these your servants, which stand continually before you to bear you witness. And we'll stop there for a moment. All right. So we had the visit of the Queen of Sheba. Interestingly, nowhere in history does it tell us anything about who this was and who this visit was. Uh, we don't even know for sure where Sheba is. There are, give you just a, the two leading candidates for it are southern part of the very southern part of Africa, which is now Yemen, and then out by Ethiopia, which would be real close together. And both of those lay claim in their history as having been the, the land that the Queen of Sheba came from. And because there's a very small land bridge, uh, sea bridge between the two, it could very easily have been a land that covered both of those. Uh, other, other places that we think that they claim to this uh, event is India, which would make spices, which would be good for spices, and Iran. I don't really believe the Iran one myself, but um, so we don't really know where she came from. She had to come someplace close enough to be able to bring a caravan of camels, which almost rules out India because India would have been elephants most likely. <laughs> Uh, so quite likely Yemen or Ethiopia are the, the two leading candidates. That was where most people hang their, <laughs> hang their hat on for her being there. There's a lot of backstories. If you want to ever study this, there's a lot of backstories on all this stuff of where she comes from, and some of the stories get a little crazy, but we're going to just leave it at that point <laughs> at, at this. Um, but she hears of the fame of Solomon in her land. So where she lives is not in Solomon's reign. All right? So any of those places that we've just named, uh, Ethiopia, Yemen, uh, India, any of those places would work out as being somebody that's not in his territory. Because in this chapter, we'll talk about how much how much territory he reigned. And he actually is the only time that Israel owned all the land that God promised them. 
He owns, he is in control from the Euphrates to the Nile and all the way out to the Mediterranean and most of the eastern side of the, the Jordan as well. So he um, is in control of the largest time that Israel had ever, ever had their kingdom. And the only time, and David conquered most of that as well, and, and Solomon added it, added to it. So we have this huge area, and she hears him, and it says, she came to prove him. And the word here for prove is to assay, and it's the same word we use when we're trying to, to check metals and the, you know, the purity of something. So she heard how great this king was, how he knew, basically the reputation was that he knew everything. All right, and it's what the scripture says, that there was nothing that God hid from them. He wrote books on uh, plants and animals and, and farming and everything. I mean, he literally did, you know, we talk about somebody who knows it all. Uh, Solomon could have gone on Jeopardy and been the forever champion. <laughs> okay, that is the kind of code that this is talking about. There was nothing that he did not understand because of the wisdom that God gave him, because that was his request. God, I want wisdom to rule these people, and God gave him a wisdom, and throughout the books that he wrote and everything, we find that he wrote so many books that aren't even scripture, but he wrote books on just about every topic there were to, to know, and basically was the advisor to anybody on anything. So this was, this was how wise he was. And she came to prove him with hard questions and it doesn't really sound as easy in the English as it is, but in Hebrew, it literally is she brought riddles or perplexing questions or enigmas. All right, so she brought things almost designed to try to trick him. You know, let's see how smart you really are. I'm going to give you a question that is not even a straightforward question and see if you can answer it. So her whole goal in her coming to see him was to see if I can trip him up with something and see if I can uh, get him to give me a wrong answer to something. Pretty much what the scribes and Pharisees kept trying to do to Jesus. They kept putting him in with questions that there were no answers. They go, we can't see an answer out, and he'd come up with the right answer. This was what she came with. She was coming in with answers. The questions weren't, these weren't, you know, what, you know, what is the density of this or what is, you know, it was, you know, these riddles and, and twisted questions trying to, I want to see how really smart he is. And it kind of indicates that she thought she was a very smart person herself, all right, or had some very big advisors telling her, here's the questions to ask. But you almost get the sense that she thought she was, the greatest thing that you know that, that existed on the world, and she's going to go. Well, I'm going to go test this, this this man out there who thinks he's so so smart, and I'm hearing how smart he is. All right, so this was, huh? She's her. She's so smart. The reputation is he's smart. Well, I'm going to go see if he is at least as smart as me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and she came with a very great. Company and I kind of find it very interesting. A very great company, All right? And this isn't just her her things. This is her troops that she had, her advisors that she had. Uh, this is almost the way it's written, a raiding type party size thing. A great company. 
And it's not numbered, so she's, she's making a show of force in this as well. I'm coming, I'm not coming for war, but I'm coming to show you how strong I am as well because she comes with a great company and with camels that bear spices and, a, and gold in abundance and precious stones. So she's also coming with much gifts for a king. So she is coming, it's kind of a two-way street. She's coming to give him gifts, but also to try to trip him up with questions. And if he didn't answer them right, probably wasn't going to give him the gifts. And has the army, you know, a, a large army with her. And so she is trying to, if you, if you kind of know your history, it's the kind of stuff that happens when nations go, you know, that are contemplating war, contemplating, you know, I want to see who is best. You show up with a lot of forces nearby. You might, you're, you're coming with gifts. You're coming with the flowery conversations. You're coming with the diplomatic double talk. Now, diplomatic double talk is not new. Political speech is not new. It has been around <laughs> forever. And this is what she's coming with. She's coming with a show of force, with gifts, and these questions to say, okay, are you really as smart as, you're, as everybody is saying you are? All right, so here's our, here's our thing. And you'll note that there's no, there's no numbers in here. It just says an abundance of gold. Now, I find this a strange thing because Solomon has so much gold that silver is worthless, is, is counted as dust, and, and, and you know, he gets in 15 tons of gold we, we talked about last week, you know, a year, and she's just bringing him an abundant supply of gold being carried by a bunch of camels. And he's got ships, we're going to find, you know, uh, he's got ships that bring him in 150 talents of gold every year. So. Uh, she's coming in trying to impress him, and I can almost look at him saying, you know, if he was to really, you know, look down on, is that all you brought? <laughs> that's, that's all? You know, uh, he probably, he may or may not have said that, but, you know, he's probably looking and saying, you know, you came to impress me, you know, where, 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 how, how are you going to impress me with this? Uh, now, if you read some of the stories, she was also very beautiful. <laughs> so that probably impressed him more than anything else. Uh, because he had this habit of grabbing, uh, grabbing women into his harem. And then it says, she communed with him all that was in her heart. And it is said in tradition that she spent six months in Jerusalem to ask all these questions and to, to do whatever else it was that she was trying to accomplish through all of this. That's a pretty long visit. She supported herself that whole time? It, well, he probably supported her. It seems so. She's commenting about how, how she saw his servants and everything. But she may have supported herself. Who knows? We don't. It doesn't explain. Uh, if you get into it, the traditions also say that uh, they slept together. <laughs> so I don't know if that's true or not. But she spends six months in Jerusalem. You know, trying to find out. Now, I don't know how many questions she had, how long it took her to find out that yes, he's as smart as the, you know, as the reputation say. Uh, he he can answer all my questions, so we don't know on that. And it says Solomon told her all of her questions, and there was nothing hid from him uh, that Solomon was not able to tell her. 
So this was something very interesting is that Solomon was able to answer everything she asked. Every riddle, every, every question, every uh, conundrum that she gave him, he was able to give an answer for. I don't know that I've ever met anybody that had all the right answers to every single question. All right. Uh, I know I've met many people who think they have all the right answers to every single question, but I have not met anybody who actually knew <laughs> all the answers to every single question. And yet, Solomon was able to answer every question that she brought to him. And it just said her whole purpose was to bring him questions that were, at least in her mind, unanswerable or, or going to be very difficult. And he was able to answer all of this. And then verse 3 says, And when the queen saw that, he had, that she had seen the wisdom of Solomon and the house that he had built, and this is referring to God's temple at this point, the temple. And if we remember, the temple was a beautiful, was one of the great wonders of that day and age, everything covered in gold. You know, and I can almost imagine when she saw the temple covered in gold from bottom to top and everywhere else, and she looked at the amount of gold she brought to try to impress him, uh, probably made her step back for a moment. Uh, because all of a sudden, you know, his, the opulence that was in Jerusalem at that time would make every other nation's grandeur pale. And there have been some great nations over the years. And yet what he had made everything else look. There's no nation in the world that had in any of the histories that said that gold was, that silver was worthless. Now silver has never been the great currency, but it's never been worthless except in Jerusalem in Solomon's time. So, you know, she's looking around and everything is in gold. Everything, everywhere she's looking in Solomon's uh, abode is in gold. The temple is in gold. Everything is in gold. And he's able to answer all of her questions. And the meat at his table. Now, I didn't take the time, but I remember in uh, Kings, it talked about how much food Solomon went through every single day. If I recall, it was something like three oxen, uh, 50 sheep, uh, not counting the, the, the deer and the, and the uh, fowl that it would take, you know, take to feed. And then you had to have your pastries and all of that stuff. You know, he put on a feast every day. So this is why when you ask who was, who was supporting her, it was probably Solomon, you know, putting her up in, you know, and showing her all of the, the food and, and entertaining her. Um, I can't believe that any of Solomon's uh, uh, leading people were very skinny with the feast that he put on every day. Uh, he, he put on, she sees how much they're eating every day in Solomon's palace. And I kind of, I'd hate to be the cook in Solomon's palace. Uh, or the army of cooks in Solomon's palace to produce this feast every day. And you figure with that many, with as much as it put on, they had to have been feeding hundreds of people every day in the banquet hall. And this was her daily event. It wasn't a once in a while event, you know, in, in that particular one in Kings, it says it was every day that this was going on. 
And so, there, so she sees this. She sees the sitting of his servants or literally the situation, how they're stationed, how they're, how they're trained. Uh, if you're familiar with going to a restaurant or a good store and watching how the workers attend to their jobs, it's very easy for me there. Once I get out of Kingman, <laughs> I can find service some places. But, uh, but when I was in management, I trained my people to give good service. And that was one of the comments that people would always have. It's good service. You know, Solomon had people that were right there. They knew, what they, they knew their jobs. They were good at it. And it was very easy for her to look around and say, they really care about this, and this is what she's saying. She looked at the situation, the attendants able to, build, to do their work. And then the attendance of his ministry or the, or the service of the, mini, of, of the ministers, okay? She watched how they took care of it. So you can almost picture which, from what she's seeing, she is seeing five-star restaurant-quality servants at the, at the banquet. She's seeing butlers doing their job and being on time and, and the hat check and all, you know, every little part of this is being done with great professionalism and great care because Solomon has been made sure that he's picked all the right people to do the right training to do to this. This is what she's seeing. She's seeing the most impressive activities that you can see. And if you've ever been, you know, uh, to a five-star hotel or something or a five-star restaurant, you know the difference between that and going to Motel 6. All right, you show up at Motel 6, here's your room key, have fun. You know, go to a really, really nice hotel, it's like, okay, you take their packages, you know, bags up, here's, you know, this is your room, this is your map to it, They're, they'll walk you to it, they walk you in, they show you all the amenities and everything there, and there's a big difference between the two, and this is what she's seeing. She's seeing something that is just to the max. And she's being impressed by all of that. And then she sees their apparel and his cupbearers. So something about the way he uniformed his people impressed her. And I don't know what it would have been, probably that everything was made out of gold. <laughs> gold buttons, gold cufflings, trimmed in gold. Uh, but the uniforms he had for his people made an impression on her. And we're not told how he, how he dressed it other than this little statement that there was something about their uniforms that impressed her. Now, in many of the smaller kingdoms, they didn't even uniform their, their attendants. They were just, you know, whatever they wore, you know, you know was okay as, as long as it wasn't too sloppy. But apparently, Solomon had uniforms for all of his servants, not just his military, but uniforms for his servants and apparently these uniforms were very impressive very impressive uniforms and his cupbearers also and their apparel so he's got their the, the cupbearers and the cupbearers are those that brought all the brought all the food and the tasting and cupbearers for the king and the high dignitaries would actually taste everything before the king and the dignitaries did, just in case it was poisoned, they would die and not the, not the dignitary. Uh, very prestigious job, because you got to take, taste the best of everything. Kind of a dangerous job if you had a king that nobody liked. 
so in some kings, it was a pretty easy job. They liked the king. You didn't. You weren't taking much. You weren't taking much in your in your at, at risk. Um, if you didn't like your king, you were, you probably didn't want to be a cupbearer. <laughs> the cupbearer also heard things that they they were to be a trusted person because they heard things that nobody else heard because they were right there with the with all the dignitaries. So they heard everything right up front. Um, so this was something that was very important position. And then his ascent by whip by which he went up to the house of the Lord. And so this is talking about the staircase that he'd made to go up to the temple. And we don't know much about this particular staircase uh, on it. Uh, Something about it impressed her. I mean, everything was made out of gold and and covered with gold. So that may have been impressive enough. I don't know. Uh, Because she might have been used to the idea of gold being inside a temple. But the gold is outside the temple and everywhere else around the temple. So, I mean, he made a temple like nobody had ever seen with gold everywhere. But there was something about the steps, even, that impressed her. And I don't know what it was. And we don't have, you know, wouldn't it be fun to have an actual snapshot of the original temple <laughs> to see what this thing looked like? Um, and when, when then she said, I have no more, there was no more spirit in her. Her gumption had been gone. Her pride had been knocked out. She had no more questions. Uh, She had been basically defeated. Uh, And that's kind of the answer you think if you've ever, if you watch sports and a team is getting beat really, really bad, you can see it just in the, you know, the way they, they carry themselves. Their spirit is gone. They have been beat so bad. They know they can't win. And you just see the difference in their team. This is the kind. She came to prove that he isn't as smart as she as, as the reports have said. And she sees, she's asked him all the questions. She's answered all the questions. She sees how he's living and all the people that are living there with him. And it's like, okay, I, I give up. <laughs> uh, I have nothing more to say, nothing more to, to challenge him with. And this is, this is, where, this is where she's at. And then she said to the king, it is a true report which I have heard in my, my own land of your acts and of your wisdom. Okay? I heard all these things, and, I, and, I, and you have now proved it to be true. All right? So she's admitting the defeat. And then she goes, howbeit I believe not their words until I came, and my own eyes have seen it, and behold, one half of the greatness of your wisdom is not told, was not told to me, for you exceed the fame which I have heard. So she goes, they didn't even, I didn't even believe what they said, and it wasn't even half of what, what, you, what, what is true. Yeah. Have you ever seen something where you just, you know, somebody's built something up, and you go, there's just no way it could be that true, and then you actually went there or saw the event and found out that it is, wow, it is so much more than they say. Um, I kind of think this is what we're going to think when we get to heaven. You know, how great we are told that it's going to be, and we're going to get there and go on, wow, if I had known it was this good, <laughs> I would have come here a long time ago. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I haven't had many expectations like this, but in her case, she's going, I didn't believe what they told me. I thought it was too good to be true, and they, they didn't even tell me half of, what, half of what's true. You know, he, whatever she has seen has impressed her completely. 
and she's saying, I'm going in and you have exceeded, you have so far increased beyond the fame that I have heard of for you. So she has come to try to prove that he is not as great as she has heard. And her, when she's ready to leave, it's, <laughs> you've just blown me away. It's, you know, it is more than, more than I was told, and I didn't even believe what I was told. So this is where we're at with the visit from the Queen of Sheba. And she continues to speak in verse 7. Happy are your men and, and happy are your servants that stand continually before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God, which delights in you to set you on his throne, to be the king for the Lord your God, because your God loved Israel to establish them forever. Therefore made he you king over them to, be, to do judgment and justice. And she gave the king 120 talents of gold and of spices, great abundance and precious stones. Neither was there any such spice as the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. And the servants also of Haran and the servants of Solomon, which brought gold from Ophir, brought algum trees and precious stones. And the king made of the algum trees terraces to the house of the Lord and to the king's palace and harps and psalteries for singers. And there was none such seen before in the land of Judah. And the king gave to the queen of Sheba all she desired, whatsoever she asked, beside that which she had brought to the king. So she turned and went away to her own land, she and her servants. All right, so she continues after saying, you know, hey, you know, I've, <laughs> you've blown, blown this way. She goes, happy are your men and happy are these your servants who stand continually before you to hear your wisdom. I kind of think this is a very interesting statement. These people are happy and blessed to just be in your presence, even though they're the servants. And I think about how many of us as Christians need to be learn just that statement, to be happy to be in the presence of God and to hear him speak and present his wisdom through teachers, through himself, through his word. We need to take great pleasure in learning from God and learning what he wants us to be learning from him. And sometimes I hear people that are just not happy to be learning as a Christian. And I just wonder about that. Why can anybody not want to learn from the word of God? And you know, I've heard people say, well, it's boring coming to church and listening to a Bible study. And I'm going, you know what, I don't think I've ever been bored at learning. Now, there have been some boring teachers, but they have, you know, I have still learned from them expounding on the word of God. They may have been monotone and hard to stay awake for. They may have been, you know, boring as a presenter, but they're teaching the word of God, and that's good. And this is what she's saying. You're standing in front of the wisest man continually. What blessing could you, what more blessing could you have? You know, and this is saying, even the great guys that are going out to battle and everything else that aren't standing before Solomon, she's saying, these guys are more, you know, you're more blessed than those, those men out there on the field and out there in battle and doing all these other things because you get to hear teaching all the time. And I think that's a wonderful statement. And it's kind of just tucked in there uh, to be ignored by most people as they read through it. And he goes, 
Blessed be the Lord your God, which delighted in you to set you on his throne to be king for the Lord your God. Now, one of the statements that by tradition says is that she became a Jew during this visit to Solomon. And if she is the queen from the Ethiopian area, that would explain the Ethiopian eunuch who comes up you know, to, in the New Testament as a Jew coming up from Ethiopia. And then, of course, he takes Christianity to Ethiopia. And when the European missionaries made it to Ethiopia, you know what? They were surprised to find a Christian church there. Now, why they were surprised to create, find a Christian church in a place where the Ethiopian Europe eunuch went to, I don't know. But <laughs> they were surprised to find a Christian church in Ethiopia. So I do tend to kind of believe that she was from Ethiopia because there's a long chain of events, even through the scripture, that support that kind of an idea. I'm not going to rule out Yemen, but, you know, but I, I do kind of tend to have this idea that it is Ethiopia where that brings this uh, idea in. Um, but she says, blessed is the, you, are you because the Lord delighted to make you king. She's recognizing who made him king. She stayed there long enough to learn that Solomon isn't saying, I made it by my own power. God put me here. God is the one that put me here. And because the Lord loved Israel to establish them forever, therefore he has made you king over them to do judgment and justice. She's recognizing his ability to judge and do justice. And this is one of the things that happens in most countries when they first start out. There's a good legal system that makes good judgments. The longer nations are in existence, the more corrupt the nation gets, the more corrupt their justice system gets. And right now in America, we are at the tail end of our, of our nation. We are no matter what. You look at history, nations last between 100 to three, 400 years. We are at the tail end of it. Our justice system is coming unglued. Our political system is coming unglued. The people are coming unglued. All right. Uh, we have no relationship with God as a nation right now. And the more we pull about away from him, the more corrupt our nation gets. And there will come a point where the nation falls. Historically, it always happens. And usually when nations get really big and strong, the people get lazy, which our people are lazy. They want to be supported by the government, which our people want to be supported by the government. They stop producing children, which means that the immigrant population and the alien population starts outnumbering them, and they usually fall from within. This is historic. Every nation that said this happened to them has fallen. We are at that point where this nation is going to fall. And I hate to say that because I love America, but when you look at history, we are at the point where we either get it corrected by a revival or this nation completely falls. Unfortunately, I think it's going to fall. I don't like to say that, but unfortunately, it is probably true. Now, that would also be why in America State, not in the, in the picture of the end times in the Bible, because there's nothing there left to stand for God. 
And God says in all nations will be against Israel in the end days. We are close to that. So we want to look at this, and this is where we're at. So it says, God has given you to judge. And she gave the king 120 talents of gold. That's about 15,000 pounds of gold. All right. So she did bring quite a few, quite a bit of gold with her on these camels. Not as much as he's bringing in from his, <laughs> from his uh, ships, but she brought a pretty large, which also tells you she has a pretty large convoy coming up there to see him. I uh, don't know how much uh, gold each camel could carry, but uh, it's taken a few camels to be able to bring 15,000 pounds of, uh, of gold. I don't even know how many trucks it would take to bring 15,000 pounds of, of gold up, at least two or three, I would think. Um, and so she brings this up. And then spices in great abundance. Now, it says spices in great abundance. She was able to, to measure... 15,000 pounds of gold. She gave him so much spices they couldn't number it. That's a, telling me there's a lot of bags of spices there. All right. Uh, and now, granted, spices aren't anywhere near the weight of gold, but, you know, but still, each of these camels had to be burdened down with these huge bags of, of spices. And it's great in number. And it, Great enough number that they didn't even put a number, number in the in the in there, and besides that, precious stones. So she brought in whatever whatever stones. This is one of the places where people probably wish that they had told us what stones were from it, because then we could identify what nation that she was probably from. But it doesn't put it in there, mostly because it's as far as God's concerned, it's irrelevant where she comes from, because it's not where she comes from that's important. It's what she has learned and what she is verifying from it. So he doesn't give us all the clues to be able to figure out where she's from. All right. And let's see. And then it says, there were no such spices as the Queen of Sheba gave to Solomon. And we, again, we don't know what spices she gave him, but whatever spices that she gave was not available to him from any other sources, apparently. Or, this, or it was such a quantity, quality that was not uh, of great value, which is one of the reasons people throw India into the mix, because India is well known for spices. And I don't know what Yemen, I don't know if Yemen would even be able to forgive me spices out of it. I do know Ethiopia has some spices that are available in it, so it still fits into Ethiopia. Uh, who knows? And that's another thing. She could have traded for any of this stuff and brought it to him. Uh, because that is one of the things that was brought out in tradition is that she was very wealthy. He's taking over all the land. She's kind of saying, is this somebody that I want to be able to, to fight or to you know, just surrender to and give, give allegiance to? Because Solomon is conquering everything, or conquering or has vassals everywhere. So he's he's got he's got control of everything in that in that region and he's expanding. So this is could be what it's going into. And this is the servants also of Haran and the servants of Solomon, which brought gold from Ophir, brought algum trees and precious stones as well. So now we just throw in another mix of people bringing stuff in. Algum trees, we have no idea what tree that is. 
I've done research on this several times. The one, the tree they believe that it is, is the red sandalwood tree, which has a very tight grain. It's really easily cut, well, cut and molded. And it is good for musical instruments, which is what he says he makes it out of it. And it's really precious uh, as far as that goes. It's good for the harps and everything. It's durable. It's fragrant. It's got a beautiful color to it. Um, so it would, so that many people believe that it is red sandalwood. But we don't really know what an algum tree is. And we don't know if it was from Lebanon or imported from other places through Lebanon. Uh, again, this would put us into an India. It, uh, sandalwood comes a lot from the Indian India area, but he was sending ships out that direction. This is where Ofar is believed to be is in India. So bringing um, the red sandalwood would not be far-fetched for him. And the king made of these algum trees terraces to the house of the Lord, and that would be your raised, raised terraces. He made harps and psalteries for the singers, and there were none such seen before in the land of Judah. So what he's talking about on these instruments, if you are familiar with uh, violin Stradivarius, he had a wood that nobody matched, and he could form it in, in ways that nobody else could match, and the resonance, he was well known. Solomon in his day was the Stradivarius of the Psalms and the harps and the psalteries. Whatever this wood was, and he had the skills to be able to have them, taught the skills to be able to bend it just right, shape it just right to get perfect resonance out of it. There was nothing else like it anywhere that he was, was dealing with. So this is, he's building the best stringed instruments. He's making beautiful things. You know, when you think about this, when you read, the more you read this about Solomon, the more you wonder, you know, History doesn't even record all of what he's done. Most of this stuff is considered myth because it's only mentioned in the Bible. All right? And they have not found the proofs of it. Until recently, they didn't even believe that Solomon existed. It was about 50, 60 years ago that they finally found archaeological proof that David and Solomon existed. And they found... Uh, uh, monuments with their names engraved into them to actually prove that they were real <laughs> people. Before that, they were considered, especially David, he was considered the, Eng the King Arthur of, of Israel, a conglomeration of kings that all, that all formed into this beginnings of Israel. And then they started finding these things that said, oh, okay, there, there's some archaeological proof that he existed. Will there ever be archaeological proof that that this was true, I don't know. It doesn't matter to me. I think eventually, if it's really needed for somebody to believe, they'll find it. But right now, everybody looks at this and say, well, it's just a myth. There's no proof that any of this ever happened. Well, one thing I want to be able to show us is that when we read the Bible, we need to be just take it for what it says. Because given enough time, things get proven. Before, 60 years ago, everybody was saying, well, David, there was no real David. You know, he was just a mythological king of Israel, and then they found the proof that David existed. 
they're finding the proof that Joseph was the was in it was in Egypt. They're finding the proofs that he was there. Now it's hard in that one because in Egypt they had this really crazy habit of every time a dynasty changed, they chiseled off the names of everybody in the previous dynasty. So it's hard to find proof that they existed because somebody has to hide a record of it. But you see chiseled out blanks on these walls <laughs> where somebody's name has been <laughs> been removed. But they've been able to find various proofs that Joseph was there. So we look at these things and you know, if you need the proof, it's there eventually. When Darwin put out in 1852 the theory of evolution, the churches struggled to try to figure out how the Bible matched science and they came up with all kinds of crazy ideas instead of just saying, well, God said it, it's true and science is coming up with something that's different, we'll just wait for the science to be proven wrong. And they did all kinds of things, and now we're knowing that if you really look at the science, it supports God's word of creation, not evolution. Evolution is so full of holes that they're trying to figure out how, and I love their newest one. They life evolved somewhere on some other planet, and life was planted here. So all they do is push it off. Somewhere there's, a ru somewhere there's rules that don't apply you know, scientific laws that don't apply, you know, uh, but we can't disprove it because it's some other planet we don't know anything about. And they just planted life here. How do you argue with that scientifically? You know, you can't even argue with this, you know, you know, with the philosophy area because it is plausible, I guess, but, you know, but that's not what God says. So I'm going to stick with what God says because they're starting to go crazy on how to defend their evolutionary theories. So just believe what the word says and eventually, if you absolutely have to have it proven, God will prove it to you. And just have faith. Everything in there has been proven out over time. And people go, well, you really believe such and such happened? Yes, I do. You really believe there was a flood that covered the whole world and, and only eight people lived and all the animals? Absolutely. There's evidence of the flood everywhere. You know, just take a look around you. <laughs> Open your eyes. Be, be open-minded like you say you think you are. You know, uh, you know, you believe that this God can create miracles? Yes, because he knows exactly how everything works. It's not even a miracle to God. It's just touching the right parts and making it happen because he knows how it happens so he just can fix things real easy. So from our perspective, it's a miracle. From God's perspective, he goes, hey, I, I created it. I know how to work. Uh, you know, it's just like if you walk into a situation and you know how to fix something, but they don't, then you look like a miracle worker. All you had to do was this. Well, I didn't know. You're right. You didn't, but I did. And so all of this comes down to how does this work? And then in verse 12, and King Solomon gave to the queen of Sheba all she desired, anything that she longed for, anything she wanted, he gave to her. She came to give him gifts. He gives her gifts. And whatever she asked for, she got. Besides that, which she went, and she went to her own land with her own servants. It almost makes it sound like she left with more than she came with. Um, or at least different things than she came with. Uh, I don't know if she came to barter <laughs> in the first place, but he's recognizing a rival in, in, to his kingdom, and he's giving back gifts. 
And this happens even today where there's exchanges of gifts between nations. Well, we've got lots of this you don't have here. You can have this and we'll take, which, we'll take the stuff that you don't have. And that's basically what's been happening. So whatever it was that she saw that she liked, that she didn't have in her, in her kingdom, she asked and he gave and it said anything she asked for. So I don't know how bold she was in her asking. Uh, she came to ask him hard questions, so I have a feeling she was pretty bold in some of the requests, especially as she started seeing, I'm getting whatever I ask for. Uh, you know, how many people can take advantage of that real quick? Uh, I'm going to get whatever I ask for. I'm going to ask for, I'm going to ask for the hills, and see how, see where, see where this uh, requesting stuff can go. And so she leaves with lots of stuff. And she goes back to her own land with all of her servants and with, more, with lots of gifts. All right, verse 13. Now the weight of gold that came into Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. Besides that, were, besides that which the chapmen and the merchants brought, and all the kings of Arabia and governors of the countries brought gold and silver to Solomon. So these little two verses are giving us an idea of the wealth that Solomon gets. Every year, he is bringing into his country 666 talents of gold, which is approximately 83,250 pounds of gold a year. That's a lot of gold coming in. Approximately 83,250 pounds of gold. A lot of gold <laughs> coming in every year. And then you note in verse 14, besides, okay, besides that which the chapmen or the tradesmen and the merchants brought. In other words, besides the taxes that were coming in. So this 66, uh, 666 talents of gold was coming from outside of the empire, being coming in from um, tributes from other nations, the, the ships that are going out to, to Ophir, uh, people like the Queen of Sheba bringing in, bringing in gifts. Uh, and then he had his tax money coming in from the merchants and the tradesmen. Right? He's got a lot of money coming in. He's got a lot of money going out, too, because he's building all the time, but he's got a lot of money coming in. Um, and then it says, and all the kings of Arabia and the governors of the land brought gold and silver to Solomon. So all the nations all around him are paying tribute as well. So he's got a ton of money coming in from his importing uh, from the mines that he's going to. He's got tax money coming in from the merchants and the tradesmen. And he's got tribute money coming in from all the nations around about him. He's got quite a bit of money coming in, and that's all that two verses is talking about. doesn't even tell us the total amount of money he's bringing in. Uh, we, start, we stop at the 666 talents, and he says that's, that's, not, even, that's not counting everything that's coming in from his tax, tax revenue. And this is very important for us to remember when we get to chapter 10 is this tax revenue statement that was in there. Uh, money coming in from the tradesmen and the merchants because it's going to be a big deal when Rehoboam takes over the kingdom. Verse 15, And Solomon made 
200 targets of beaten gold, 600 shekels of beaten gold went into each one target, and 300 shields which he made he of beaten gold, 300 shekels of gold went into one shield, and the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. All right, these are special shields that he's making for decorative, for show purposes. He makes 200 of these targets or large shields with 600 shekels of beaten gold. They're about eight and a half pound shields of gold in these large shields. Pretty good hefty shield. I don't know if I would try to go to war with an eight and a half pound shield. They're decorative, they're, mar they're marching shields. They are uh, designed for him to be showy. Yeah, so everywhere he went, we'd have these 200, uh, the soldiers decked out with 200 of these large shields. All right? Uh, and then he made 300 smaller shields, and they only have 300 shekels of, of gold. They're, they're about 4.75 4 pounds of gold each. That's a more reasonable size shield. And so he's got these big decorative ones. These probably, I guess the eight and a half pound ones would be used to stand around guards more than anything else. Uh, I don't know that I'd want to walk around with eight and a half pound shield on my arm all day long. That would get heavy even as strong as those soldiers are. Uh, so probably more the, the, the guards that are standing at, you know, at the entrances. Um, and then he's got these other 300 of them with regular sized shields. Now, can you imagine the glimmer, the, the shine of these, the, uh, how long it took to keep, keep up the looks and everything of these, uh, polished probably to within an inch of, the <laughs> inch of the gold to make sure they're shining. You know, these guys looked sharp carrying, their, carrying these shields around, and, and even if they were just standing, standing guard with a big shield or whatever, they're going to look impressive. This is all done, and I didn't calculate out the weight of eight, eight and a half pounds of gold in dollars, but that's a lot of, that's a lot of money. <laughs> now, each shield would have been a lot. Oh, I did do that. I actually did that. Sorry about that. Each of the large shields in currency as of two days ago when I looked this up was $222,600 worth of gold in those large shields. That's quite impressive. Each shoulder, sh soldier decked out with a quarter of a million dollar shield <laughs> to, to hang on to. And now I'm sure gold was not worth quite as much back in his day, but still an impressive, an impressive amount. These small shields were only $111,000 for, for each shield <laughs> only. You know, uh, Solomon, send one of those my way. I could use $111,000 to pay off my bills. And, you know, and these were decked out to his soldiers to carry. They were put into the, the uh, house of the forest of Lebanon, which just outside of Jerusalem it was the royal, royal armory, so that they would armor their, armor their uh, soldiers from that armory. Pretty much everywhere Solomon went, he went with his highly impressive soldiers. So you can get an idea of why the Queen of Sheba was so impressed. His soldiers carry gold shields. <laughs> Everywhere he's going, there's gold shields around, around her. That would be impressive to any king. You know, and I'm sure a lot of it was to impress. These kings come in. They got their guys with their, 
uh, wooden wooden and uh, wooden shields with bound bound uh, metal, or they come in with a metal shield. His his soldiers all around them have gold shields. Now I don't know that I want to go to battle with a gold shield, <laughs> but it still looked impressive. Look how much money he's got. His his soldiers wear gold <laughs> to a great degree, and it would be very impressive to everybody. And this is what Queen Queen of Sheba saw. This is what any dignitary saw. You know, that's what the people saw. Solomon marching around in his army, his bodyguard with gold shields, looking looking sharp. Uh, may not have been too practical in war, but looked looked good. Uh, and it's kind of like even in our military today, you have your dress uniforms that you don't wear into battle. Uh, if you, everybody knows the Marines dress blues, you know, and they get impressed. They know, look at that uniform. That looks sharp. Or you see the Navy's dress blues, you know, with the long sleeves and, and the, all the adornments to them. And I remember my dad's dress uniform because he got enough good conduct that he actually got to wear gold <laughs> on his dress uniform. And so he had four good conduct stripes on his on the bottom shoulder, you know, on the bottom sleeves of it and and you know, being a chief, he had huge gold <laughs> on the side. It just looked sharp, you know, it didn't have a whole lot of rank, but <laughs> but it looked really sharp. And this is the idea of these golden shields. His these aren't the war the war uniforms. This is the one that says, look how well dressed <laughs> my soldiers are. And I don't believe that the gold stopped at the shield. <laughs> it's what it told us, but I don't believe the gold stopped at the shield. Now, I believe that, that gold was probably sewn into the uniforms and, and hilts of the swords and everything. I think those people were decked out very, very impressively for this dress uniform idea that they had. Um, so all of this was to just show opulence that he had in his, in, his, in his country. Verse 17, moreover the king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with pure gold and there were six steps to the throne with a footstool of gold which, which were fastened to the throne and the stays on each side of the sitting place and two lions standing on each by the stays and twelve lions stood there on the one side of, of, and on the one on the other were six steps, and there was not like it made in any kingdom. So it talks about his throne. He makes his throne out of ivory. Now, I don't know how he pieced together enough ivory to be able to make a throne of ivory, but he made a throne of ivory. And I don't know how easy it is to to, to carve ivory. Never really thought about that. Uh, but his throne is made and pieced together out of ivory. And then he takes this beauty of ivory <laughs> and puts gold over the top of it. <laughs> yeah. Most of the kings would have been happy just to have an ivy, <laughs> ivory throne. And he's going, well, I've got an ivory throne, and then I'm going to cover it with gold. Yeah. And I, then he had to put cushions on it, because I can't imagine sitting on gold, gold all day long. Uh, but you know, it also goes to show you what little 
care he had of anything that wasn't gold. Everything about him had to be gold. Even though he's building these things out of some of the best materials there are, and then he takes those best materials that everybody would have been happy to have their kingdom, their kingdom surrounded by, and he dumps gold over them. Just to show how you know, impressive it is. And then he says, there were six steps to the throne. And so that means he's up pretty high to get six normal steps. So that would probably put him three to four feet up on his steps. And each of these steps, and then he had a, a footstool fastened to the throne. All right. So I don't know how he fastened it to it, but then it talks about the stays being embedded into it, so it did not move. Um, uh, that footstool had to be made just perfect for him, otherwise it would have to move. <laughs> but he, he had it set up, and he's, he's wise, he's great, he knows what he's doing, and he, he has it fastened in. And on each side of these steps, he puts lions. All right, so he's got a lion on each side of it, and there were 12 of them, and it says there was nothing else like his throne anywhere in the world. Now, if you've ever seen some of the pictures of thrones of some of these kings, and they're saying there was nothing like his, you can start to imagine what his had to have been looking like. I kind of, when I read this picture of Solomon, I start thinking a lot about heaven. I really do think a little bit about heaven because what we think we know about heaven <laughs> is so little compared to what heaven is truly going to be like. You know, we get descriptions of it. And the best descriptions we have are what man can make descriptions of. And say it is, and you'll notice every time there's something that talks about heaven, it was like pearl, it was like gold, it was like you know this, it was like jasper. They're going the closest thing I can describe it, and the picture they paint is very beautiful of heaven. But what is it really going to look like? I think when we think when we see this idea of Solomon's possessions and what he created. We can say heaven is going to be mind-blowing, <laughs> other than the fact that we've already, you know, gotten our spiritual bodies so that we're not going to. But even then, I think it's going to be. I never expected it to be this good. You know, I never expected because that is our relationship with God. I didn't know God was this good. When you first get saved, didn't you? Do you remember when you first got saved and you really realized God took away my sin? He's given me peace that passes understanding. And that's just the beginning. Then you find out he gets better. <laughs> you know, he gave you all these blessings to start with. And the more you get to know him and the more you get to follow him, you're going, God, this is just amazing. You are so much better than you were when I first knew you. And you're getting better and better with each passing day. When, the more I get to know you, the more I get to realize that I can trust you and that you are good, and that you are good all the time, and that you've got a plan. And heaven's going to be that same way. It's going to be so much more exceeding than we expected it to be. 
And we're going to get there and go, wow, I didn't know that it would be this good. And then we actually get to meet the Father in Jesus. And then we'll really get our minds blown. And then we could spend eternity getting to know them in a deeper and more intimate way. And I truly believe that for eternity we're going to get to know him and he's going to blow our minds constantly for eternity as we get to know him in a deeper, more intimate way for eternity. And it's going to be, wow, just like it is now. You are so much more than I thought you were when I first knew you 5,000 years ago. You are so much more now, 10, you know, 10 million years after I've known you than you were you know, when I first got to know you. And we're just going to constantly be awed by how much better he is than we expect. Because I do not believe that we learn everything stepping into heaven. I believe we forever will be learning. And we'll learn about God. We'll learn about his mercy. We'll learn about his grace. We'll learn about his love for us and his capacity of caring. And we'll keep learning, I think, for eternity. And that's where we're going to end today. Lord, we ask you to help us to see you in a deeper, more intimate way. Help us to learn to trust you. Help us to see your greatness and all that you have for us, Lord, then that we will do not even see the beginning of what you are. And we just thank you for all of that. In Jesus' name, amen. Listening friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and this is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please today make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you've said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com. Or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day.